fascination with power, it seems to me, is the presupposition that power is essentially about coercion, that even when power looks life-giving and creative, it actually cloaks a violent fist in a creative glove. I believe this is exactly backwards. I actually believe the deepest form of power is creation, and that when power takes the form of coercion and violence, that is actually a diminishment and distortion of what it was meant to be. Indeed, instead of creation being merely well-concealed coercion, violence is best seen as the result of misplaced and misdirected creation. I have no hope, of course, of being as erudite or influential as Foucault himself. I am not a philosopher or a scholar of any sort. I am a journalist, and my job as a journalist is to do my best to make complicated things clear, quickly, for people who could be doing something else. Readers who want the real philosophical meat should turn to the book that first started me down this path, John Milbank's Supremely Difficult Theology and Social Theory. I wish them a safe journey. Oliver O'Donovan's life work, especially Resurrection and Moral Order and The Desire of the Nations, is a gift to those who want to think more deeply about the political implications of seeing power as creative love. A very different influence on me years ago was Marilyn French's feminist manifesto, Beyond Power, which awakened one privileged male university sophomore to the interaction of power and gender, and also started a low-simmering dissatisfaction with the idea that we could ever get beyond power in the way she seemed to hope. When I started to seriously explore these topics, Janet Hagberg's wise and practical real power seemed much more helpful than French. None of these influences can be held responsible for anything I say here, except that they planted the seeds of a question. What if the Western intellectual tradition, at least since Nietzsche, but further back, as Milbank shows, through Max Weber to the ancient Greeks, is mistaken about power? What if there is another way? If the gospel really is good news for all of creation, is it possible that the gospel is good news about power? The truth is, we need far more deeply Christian, deeply honest conversations about power than any one book can offer. My hope with this book is simply to get us talking about power and talking about it in a new way, a way that goes to the heart of the good news and the one who alone is good. There are four parts to this book. Each is punctuated by biblical explorations, looking at the themes of power in biblical texts from Genesis to John to Philemon to Revelation. The amazing thing about Scripture is that when we bring almost any serious question to it and begin reading and listening with that question in mind, we discover a richly textured, endlessly provocative way of seeing that question in the stories, poems, prayers, laments, and prophecies of the Bible's witnesses. A book that tried to treat the biblical theology of power would be a different and far thicker book, but I hope these biblical explorations at least show us, like geologists, digging test wells in a newly discovered formation, just how much treasure remains to be unearthed when we start asking the Bible to form our imaginations about power. The first part of this book makes the case that power is a gift, a gift that has been diminished and distorted by sin, but a gift nonetheless. Power is rooted in creation, the calling of something out of nothing, and the fruitful multiplying abundance of our astonishing world. It is intimately tied to image-bearing, the unique role that human beings play in representing the cosmos's creator in the midst of creation. You can't tell a biblical story about image-bearing, however, without talking about false images.
The story of what has gone wrong with power is the story of how the image-bearers misused their gift of creativity. They replaced the true image of the invisible God with all-too-tangible substitute images, false gods who bring nothing but diminishment and disappointment. The misuse and rejection of God's gift of image-bearing takes the form of idolatry and injustice, the two things God most hates. Understanding how these two distortions of image-bearing relate to one another is the key to understanding what has gone so tragically wrong with the gift of power. Only when the true image-bearer arrives do we begin to see how the story of our idolatry and injustice may have, against all odds, the happiest possible ending. The second part of the book is about the very concrete ways that idolatry and injustice creep into our use of power, the ways we are tempted to play false gods. Like the man and woman in the garden after they ate the fruit, power, so present and visible in the very...